morning. Merry Christmas, almost. Merry Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a baby. When you see a baby, you, you really have two thoughts, at least two thoughts. First is that baby's adorable because babies are just sweet and cute. But then you begin to think about what will become of this baby. What will be the contours of their life? This Advent season, as we've been preparing for the celebration of Jesus' birth, we've, we've been preaching Jesus. And we've been preaching Jesus through the stories of a group of women who are included in his genealogy. They're presented in the birth narrative. And we've looked to their stories because their stories give us a greater understanding of the contours of Jesus' life. They round out our understanding of, of who he is and why he came. We've heard that each of these stories over the past few weeks have pointed in unique ways to to both the birth and the death of Jesus. And the story we come to today does that um, with a highlight on what Jesus came to do. Maybe more than the other stories that we've seen. We see in our story today a focus, maybe even less on the person of Jesus and more on the works of Jesus. Our story today is the fourth story the fourth woman. We, we find her name, maybe, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The wife of Uriah. Who was this woman? For her story, we will look to 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'm going to read for you a portion of this passage, verses 1 through 5. But as I read these verses, and as we go throughout this sermon, I, I want to put a question before you. There's a question I want you to wrestle with as you listen to this text and as you hear this word preached. This is the question I want you to wrestle with. Who is this story about? Because this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. 
Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, as we come to this story, it's a a story that we wonder about, a story that seems indiscreet. Why would you include it in your word? But it is your word, and it is for us to point us to Jesus. And so I pray that you would grant us the blessing of your spirit to do just that. Show us Jesus in this story. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Who is this woman in the genealogy of Jesus? She is another man's wife. She is the wife of Uriah. So who is Uriah? Well, Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Think the Navy SEALs. Only there were 37 of them. And they were Davids. They were elite warriors who were loyal to him and thus loyal to Israel, and thus loyal to the Lord. Uriah was one of them, and Bathsheba was his wife. But there's more that we see in the passage that we've just read, more that we learn about Uriah, not only uh, about Bathsheba. Not only was she Uriah's wife, she was the daughter of Eliam. Eliam also was one of those elite warriors known as David's mighty men. But not only was Eliah, Bathsheba's father, a mighty man, he was the son of Ahithophel, and Ahithophel was one of David's trusted counselors. So put all this together, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah, the daughter of Eliam, and the granddaughter of Ahithophel. In other words, the point of all of this is that it is inconceivable that David did not know who this woman was. Her family was part of his inner circle. He trusted them and they were loyal to him. That's who this woman is. David most certainly would have known her. In addition to all that, The text goes on to tell us she was very beautiful. Beauty is from the Lord. Beauty is to be celebrated. But this mention here of her beauty tells us perhaps more about David than about Bathsheba. We hear this, it ought to draw our attention back to Eve. The first sin. When Eve took of the forbidden fruit because it was a delight to the eyes. This Advent, we're exploring the stories of four women who are included in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. But as I reflect on this story, I honestly do not know who the story is about. Bathsheba 
is listed in Matthew 1, verse 6, but her name is not given. Why is that? been with us over the past few weeks, you know that God was not shy about including former pagans and prostitutes in the name of Jesus and listing them by name. So why not hers? Maybe. Because the point of this story is that it is not about her. Maybe it's about David. Maybe it's about David's sin. We've asked who this woman is, and as we've been making our way through these stories, we've also asked the question, what is this story? But today, maybe we should ask, what is his story? As we think about David's story, I want to, I want to present it in two parts. I want us to think about it as a part A and a part B of David's story. We're sort of in the middle of part A. As we reflect on part A of David's story, there are certain highlighted elements in what I have already read from the first five verses. You know, from David's past, we know that he too was a mighty warrior. He was a poet. He was a leader. He was the man after God's own heart, but something is wrong. We read this, and and there ought to be red flags waving. This is the time of year when the kings go out to battle. But David sent someone else. He's neglecting his duty. He's staying at home. He's, He's lounging. It's a picture of of idleness, but that physical idleness might be a pointer to a deeper, more dangerous idleness, a a spiritual idleness. David's pictured at ease. The king of Israel in the middle of the day is lounging on his couch on the roof, and there at ease, his heart And his eyes wandered from the Lord. He saw Bathsheba. He sent for her. He slept with her, knowing full well who she was and whose she was. So when she told him that she was pregnant, he went into cover-up mode. It's sadly interesting, as you read this text, what is not there. What is not there in part A of David's story is any sign of remorse. Only deceit. So what does David do? He concocts a plan. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll bring Uriah back from the front lines. I'll get a report from him. I'll send him home. Surely there, away from from the battlefront, he'll go, he'll be with his wife. I'll have a cover-up. Everyone will assume that this child is Uriah's problem solved. But David had another problem. This mighty man was more upright than he. 
Uriah refused to dishonor his, his fellow warriors by comforting himself with his wife while they were out in the field. Instead of going to his beautiful wife at home, Uriah slept there at the front of David's house on his, on his front steps along with David's other servants. David got word of this and, and so the next day he doubled down and he said, well, I'll just have to get Uriah drunk. <laughs> he did. But Uriah still refused to go and comfort himself with his wife. So, plan takes another turn. David sent him back to battle, but he didn't send him empty-handed. He sent him with a note to the commander, Joab. The note told Joab to, to put Uriah at the front of the fighting, to, to send them up to the front where the fighting was fiercest, and then to back away, leaving Uriah exposed. Joab followed his orders and then sent word back to David that Uriah had been killed in battle. That's the story of the rest of chapter 11. In addition to adultery, David added lying and murder. But could there be more? There's little in this story about Bathsheba, and so we're left to wonder, is she an adulteress? Or is she a victim? Again, I read this story and, and I don't know, but I want to know. Do you? Maybe our wanting to know is so that we can label David. At minimum, he abused his power. But what was the extent of this sin? Scripture sums it up in this. He was a sinner. Scripture doesn't give us the pleasure of identifying whether or not we are above or below him in the sin-pecking order. But we're wondering here, why is he so celebrated? You have heard me over the past couple of weeks say how the Old Testament points to David. And I've said that when we see the scriptures pointing to David, it is training our eyes to look beyond David to the greater David. We celebrate David. We highlight him. But why? It doesn't seem right. It seems like he should be canceled instead. Who is this story about? Well, if that was part A, maybe part B of David's story begins with chapter 12. I want to put before you 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought 
And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Look, is David an awful, rotten sinner? There is little doubt about that. But does the Lord love him? Yes. How do we know this? How do we know that the Lord loved this awful, rotten sinner? The Lord sent Nathan. Do not miss this. Please do not miss this. Discipline is a grace. The discipline of the Lord is the grace of the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to confront David. The Lord sent Nathan to discipline David. And the Lord sent Nathan to restore David. He did so with this story of this rich man and this poor man and the rich man stealing the one poor the poor man's one lone lamb it was a story that was meant to expose david's self-righteousness and it did it had effect david responded with self-righteous indignation he he magnified the penalty for theft death was not the penalty in that case but david was ready to issue it, and at that point, Nathan caught him. It was the gotcha statement. <laughs> you are the man. You are the sinner. It's a response to this grace. This grace of confrontation, what was David's response? We don't have to wonder. The scripture actually tells us in in Psalm 51, David took ownership of his sin through heartfelt repentance. I want to put a portion of Psalm 51 before you this morning. Psalm 51 is the psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David writes, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth 
in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is the story of Jesus. This is why Jesus came. This is why we celebrate Christmas. Yes, the discipline would continue. There would be earthly consequences for David's sin. Confession and repentance, it does not mean that we can just move on and forget about what we have done. David's life from here on out is pretty messy. His family was a wreck. There would be civil war in the nation of Israel and later after him the kingdom would be divided but what is clear in David's response to this confrontation is that the Lord had graciously given him a brokenness over his sin that the Lord had restored him to right and renewed relationship with his God part A and part B of David's story because I hope and trust that we can relate to the messiness of this man's life. The gracious turn that the Lord brings in him. In Psalm 51, there is no hiding. There is no blame shifting. There are only cries for mercy. David cries out, speaking of my iniquity, my sin, my transgression. This is personal. David is taking ownership for his sin and he's repenting of it and returning to the Lord. It's a sign of his cleansing. David speaks of that cleansing in verse 7 when he cries out, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. The hyssop branch was used to spread the blood of the sacrifice. We heard a couple of weeks ago about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 when the people of Israel took took a hyssop branch and dipped it in the blood of their sacrificial lamb and wiped it over the doorpost. Hebrews 9, verses 19 through 22, it's perhaps more clear. Moses took 
the hyssop branch and dipped it in the blood and sprinkled the blood on everything in sight. The tent, the book of the law, the people of God. Because as the word tells us, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. With Rahab, we were reminded that when we look back to the Passover, we then look forward to the cross. The sacrificial system did not atone for anything, but it pointed to the fulfillment, to the one who would come and sacrifice himself. David couldn't see Jesus with clarity, but he trusted in the promise of God by faith. He trusted in the promise that God had made that one day, someday, there would come a redeemer who would be the offspring of the woman. David trusted in this promise by faith, and he cried out to him in desperation. David's cry of repentance is a cry for cleansing in Christ. A cleansing that would cleanse him of his past record of his sin and would be the granting of a new righteousness. One that we know in David's story and I pray that we know in our own is not earned. But is graciously given and received through faith. In Jesus, David cried out. He cried out for the blessing of a new and clean heart, the heart of Jesus. David cried out to be upheld with a willing spirit, the spirit of God that would lead him in a new life of holiness. And sister, Psalm 51 is David's response to the conviction that is brought by God through Nathan. And it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it speaks to the promise that we have in Jesus of new life, of forgiveness, of restoration with our God. David is crying out to the one who would come through his line. A line that is marred by his own sin with the wife of Uriah. But a line that is redeemed by Jesus. As we've explored these stories, one of the questions that we've asked ourselves is, what does it matter to me? How is it shaping our family story? Stories do that. We remember these stories. I understand fully well that it's an awkward time of year to look to this story, but God has given it to us in Matthew 1. In this story, as with all stories, when we repeat them, we remember who we are, who we are as a people. I want to point something out to you from Psalm 51. I, I read a portion of the introduction those introductions are actually part of the scripture. They're not later additions. I read a portion of that introduction. I didn't read all of it. The beginning of Psalm 51 might be the most radical statement in the psalm. It begins to the choir master. 
David wrote this psalm for the people of God to sing. David wrote this song. It was a song of repentance for the people of God to sing because we are not to be a people who hide our sin. We are not to be a people who blame others. We are to be a people who own our own messiness. We are to be a people who bring that messiness to the Redeemer. What does this story have to do with us? It is our story. And David gave it to us to sing because in singing it, it points us to the Redeemer who came on Christmas morning. It's the marker of our identity. And that marker is not our own self-sufficiency. It's a broken and contrite spirit. Not a brokenness over circumstances a brokenness over our own sin. And we can sing this song because in Him, in Jesus, we find cleansing. To the choir master, it's a radical statement. No other king does this unless that king is pointing to a greater hope. Sheba, the wife of Uriah, she uniquely points us to Jesus because she focuses our attention on what Jesus came to do. Certainly in the genealogy, we look to the birth of the baby Jesus, but the story draws our attention beyond the baby to the man. To the God-man who came to save his people from their sins. Who came to earn their redemption. The story points us to Jesus. Because the line of the Redeemer continues through the wife of Uriah. The child that we've read about in 2 Samuel 11. That child died part of the earthly consequences of sin but in their restoration another came Solomon and through him Jesus so I asked you at the beginning who is this story about prophet Nathan exposed David's self-righteousness and through his self-righteousness exposed his sin, but I wondered aloud this morning what I wondered in silence this week. What was the extent of David's sin? I wanted to define it because in defining it, it might make me feel better or worse about my relative sinfulness. point that we're all trying to find, the point that will make us feel better, but could it be that Nathan and his confrontation with David is also speaking to us, that I am the man, that you are the man, you are the woman, 
We are the ones who have sinned. We are the ones for whom Jesus came. We all share in David's sin struggle. But the discipline of Nathan is the discipline of the word, and it is all a grace. On Christmas, the Lord is speaking to us collectively and individually. And in his speaking, we ask, who is this story about? It's about Jesus. And it's about us. Because through it, we are reminded that Jesus came to save David. And Jesus came to save Bathsheba. And Jesus came to save you. And Jesus came to save me. And so let us celebrate. Lord Jesus, you are you're the name above all names. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. You are the Savior of sinners like me, like us. This Christmas season, we have we have heard your story in a in a different way. But it's a reminder that it's our story because you came to redeem us, to restore us, and to draw us into our into your family. So I pray that today. For all of us, regardless of the extent of our restless wandering, I pray that you give us hearts to return. Do this, we pray. In your name.